What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Bernice Chow, who's an AAPI activist and award-winning book author. She wrote the book, The Visibility Mindset, which is a guide for helping the AAPI community find success in the workplace. She's in LA. She is 2023. She runs its mother of the year amazing and also makes Asians in advertising happen with Jessalyn Lamb. We're going to talk about all of that, but we're also going to talk about state of creativity. I'm going to get into like the most surprising, no, no, not the most surprising thing, but the thing that I was like, what does that actually mean? Mother of the year. What's that? I don't know if you've looked at creative departments, usually typically on brand or agency side, but it typically looks very one gendered, usually male. And in terms of racial breakdowns, it tends to look a little bit more white. And so I grew up in this creative department really trying to struggle to be seen. And I realized I was the wrong gender. I was a different color. And as soon as I was planning for family planning, I realized looking around that I had no examples of that. And so I actually thought I was going to be put out to pasture. I was like, what are they going to do with me? I feel like women have just jumped off like as soon as they get to a level because of, you know, working hours, time commitments, just being needed around the clock in this kind of environment that I'm so grateful that this organization really talks to mothers as well. It's a women's organization that really promotes leaders in branding and marketing, but they had a whole award category for women who have stayed in their career as mothers throughout their entire lifetime. So I actually won the New to Motherhood Career Award because I have a one and a half year old and a four year old. We're going to talk about Asians in advertising in the book you wrote in a second, but you're on this adventure now where you've made a little shift in your life and you're going to explore creativity in a slightly different way. Give us your current situation and where your head's at. So I just told Mark here that today's my first day of living my values. I have been in the creative world for about 18 years now, and I decided to just take a step in a direction where I get to kind of choose the brands I work on, how I work on them, And even if that meant on a single curation person point of view, I spent so long bringing visibility to big, giant Fortune 500 brands that what if that looked like for individuals? What does that look like for our community as AAPI? What can I do that really brings in my value as a creative marketer that I can do to help a society of people? And so that's kind of my next path, which I'm building out a curriculum with Jessalyn Lamb at the moment that we're going to really lean into kind of our conversations about visibility and how to amplify for yourself and create a voice for yourself. And so we're going to try that out. So when you talk about a curriculum, does that mean you're building a training entity or is it a consultancy plus training plus publishing your own little flywheel going on there? Yeah, I would say it is that we have the book building out more talks as well as a curriculum as well. Okay. We were talking about this before we recorded. I'm just going to make an awkward segue into it. You have had pretty big jobs as a creative leader, head of integrated creative, for example. And at the same time, and I feel like I was relatively early in this, I'm, I'm older and I'm not using that as a way to trump you at all, but I remember various phases of advertising and digital work that was sort of conceptual, then very conceptual, and then all of a sudden everything was broken into always on content and hashtags and just making a whole bunch of stuff and everyone's just burning out on this hamster wheel. You're in LA. LA is an entertainment town, a content town, a creator town, just south of San Francisco, relatively speaking, which is, you know, very central in the world of tech. And you like both of these things, content and tech. What's your opinion 
about the state of creativity, but specifically when it comes to the work that agencies are or can do for brands right now? Yes. I mean, I started where YouTube was new. Social media was new-ish. I also date myself when I would say Facebook wasn't even around when I was in college. And it's kind of interesting to see us go from an area where stuff you saw on the internet, people sought for, right? I say the the Halo campaign of I Love Bees. Like people are trying to find a payphone in the middle of the nowhere to get an experiential interaction with a brand. And now we've gotten to this point where always on, brands are always shouting at us. They're just churning content for content's sake. Whereas it used to be very smart and purposeful and it disrupted. And now we've gotten to this oversaturation world. And so my hope is that we can get back into this place where we come up with really smart creative that uses a platform in an interesting way. So you seek it out. I actually also teach at Loyola Marymount University M school. And we always talk about like, there is really interesting work that disrupts by using something in an unexpected sort of way. So whether that's a medium, whether it's a channel, or just like the way of thinking. But that's the work that I want to do more of and see more of out there. Let's pick on that word disrupt. And obviously, TBWA talks a lot about disruption. But I like that word because it focuses the mind on the thought that being creative is naturally a disruptive thing. You're introducing ideas into the world and the world doesn't want to change and ideas encourage or force change into the world. However, I think it's pretty fair to say that the client universe right now is pretty conservative. They don't like disruption. Big corporations are literally built to avoid disruption, to make people very easily replaceable. And yet people like you have been trying to or are and will continue to try to sell in ideas that are disruptive into these environments that are not set up to receive them. What's your take on that? So I actually did two stints at TBWA. So I really do remember we hone this word so much. And there's sometimes where I'm like, I don't, what's left? But there's so much left. I remember there was that shift at one point where people brought in like, here's data analytics. If you put your logo on for the whole 30 seconds, if you only show product and they were showing like, oh, all the focus marketing and all this stuff. And it became like, here's a product video of the thing for 30 seconds. And it just totally diluted. And I remember how up in arms, like our creative teams were like, oh my gosh, we can't just show product demos. Like this is what your data is showing us. And I think what you're seeing is we're kind of all going there. We're like the advertising is feeling a little flat, but I think you have to kind of look at creativity in other ways where it's like, how do you get people to care? How do you have people get that emotional resonance, that affinity to your brand? And that's doing work that is intriguing. That's doing work that has a heart or a purpose or a reason of being. I talk about this within, you know, when I give talks about the AAPI community and it's there is a level of work that still hasn't been done in storytelling and that I believe is telling or different stories. I always give the example of the Procter & Gamble commercial from the name that talked about an AAPI experience. And I feel like that was that whole project when I talked to people on that end of the business. This was a brief that was just like, I don't know. Let's just do something. Let's just throw it together. And it proved in spades that original storytelling that really celebrates a community can still be new, can be fresh, and get that brand awareness. Before we get into more about AAPI, 
the AAPI community and what you've been doing with them and what you want to do with them. Have you sold in any good ideas since the pandemic? I mean, I've done some fun things. I love the TikTok work that I did at RGA, which is the Doritos Duet Roulette, because I kind of thought my expectations for it was not the highest because it was such a small sandbox. Tell us about it. So the brief was Frito-Lay came in and was like, we are bringing back the Doritos roulette chip from years ago. And we want people to care and do something with it. So a bunch of ideas were pitched. Idea they really liked was called Doritos Duet Roulette that played off the duet feature within TikTok, which was new at the time, and to gamify it. But the point of participation was you had to go to a Walmart to buy these chips. They were the only retailer that sold it. So we were so hamstringed on just location, geolocation of this. And so the expectations was like, okay, we're going to get people to participate in a gamification of chip eating. And they just did this with Matthew McConaughey. They did a hashtag flat life uh, with their Super Bowl campaign and interaction was like, meh. And I was like, we don't have Matthew McConaughey. We don't have anywhere near that budget of media to put behind this. So it was kind of like a hope this works out. We got some lower tier influencers, not like, you know, we didn't get the Jenners of the world on it. We had some TikTok first. We created TikTok's first track that was really fun. And we put it out there and we had influencers behind it. We gave influencer packages. There was so much participation. I totally blew my expectations. I think it said 6 billion impressions, which I don't even know how that's possible. That's more than people in the world. But actually, people wanted to join in. They wanted to participate. We sold out the chips. Like I actually cannibalized my second part of my campaign because there was a whole like follow up to it. And instead, they just wanted to do more of the same. Uh, But for me, I was like, this is really fun. It was my first TikTok first campaign. It was a complete like, hey, we're going to just show up on this platform only. It was really cool to kind of utilize the platform in a new way and get participation. I've interviewed a lot of people and I've worked with a lot of people, but I haven't heard someone in a creative department talk about having low expectations of their own work. That's super interesting to me. I mean, I probably shouldn't have said that out loud, but I was like blown away. So the low expectations were partly because it was a little bit new, but also it was happening in the shadow of a big Super Bowl thing. Is that why? Yeah, because the participation wasn't there previously and it was such a high entry to barrier. Like the fact that you had to actually go and drive physically to a store and pick up a bag of chips in a period of time. I think the marketing portion of it for the media was like three day window. I don't even remember. It was not even a good time. Like I think by the time we got it going, we were in a weird time. And so I was like, crossed my fingers and was like hoping for the best. And when it took off, I was like, this is incredible. That's awesome. But also, isn't Walmart within, I don't know, a few minutes of like 80% of the USA? Do you have the statistic? I don't have the statistic. But it's very close to a lot of people, relatively speaking, because everyone here drives. Yeah, but I think, you know, I'm such an online shopper that I was like, I haven't physically driven to a Walmart in a bit. But again, expectations were blown. That's cool. Let's talk about the book that you've written, The Visibility Mindset. It was number one on it. Amazon in a category. Which category was that? It was number one in the bestsellers as well as Asian American s- studies. Very, very cool. Now, for people who aren't familiar with AAPI and who have yet continued to listen to what we're talking about, explain the acronym. What is it? Asian American Pacific Islander. Do you know the history? Like, why were they put together like that? 
I actually should know this. I think as a community, we're seen as a monolith where all of us are grouped together, whether or not we're from 20 different countries, different languages, backgrounds, even governmental entity. Like, But somehow we have become one big classification. And so that classification, they try to be as inclusive as they can. And so they actually say Asian American as well as Pacific Islander. It's just interesting because that's a lot of people and a lot of geography. And then there's research that suggests that people who are in Mexico, many of them are related to people from Asia because the way they cross. So at what point, aren't we all just the one person, the one type of person, but we're not, I guess. I don't know. At what point did you become an activist and, and why? I think culturally we talk about this a lot and how being second generation, my parents came here for college. And one of the things you do when you come here as an immigrant is you assimilate. And that is very prevalent in our culture. You come to this country, my parents renamed themselves. They gave themselves really American names, Nelson and Ingrid. They named me Bernice. And we're taught to be as blended as we can. My father sees me as an adult, and I think this was his last visit. And he was like, do you have the biggest words? Do you sound American enough? Do you have an accent? And in my mind, I'm like, I was born here. Why would I have an accent? Why would I sound differently? But it's a real worry. It's a big concern when you get into this country to like, how can you be a part of everybody else and not rock the boat? And so for me, I didn't really lean into my cultural identity. There was that Asian side of me. And then there's that American side of me. Oh, there's that time where my dad takes me to go to eat at a Chinese restaurant or to do a heritage activity. But that was always very different than my American side. You know, for instance, bring to work as food, what I wear as clothing. I was really conscious of looking like I was foreign because I was always taught that that was a side of me that kind of needed to be kind of hidden away. And so it wasn't until the pandemic happened where the community completely scapegoated. Being an East Asian woman was now scary. Now was a concern. And my race was brought up to the forefront. No longer could I scoot it under the rug. It was like, bam, this is what I am. And it really started making me reexamine kind of like my experiences and who I had as mentors or expressions of where I can go. Because I've never worked for a BIPOC female. I don't know what happens to Asian women in a career setting. Who do I talk to about things that were inequities or even advice that didn't work out? I had amazing mentors that were white males because that is kind of you know, the big demographic of my departments. And they would just be like, go ask for that race. Go ask for that brief. Just go, go ask for it. And I'd be like, I did, but that's not working. What else am I doing? And they're just like, I don't know. What aren't you doing? Like it was never a communication about maybe the way I looked, maybe the way I spoke, maybe their own perceived biases. And so that kind of gave me a racial reckoning with, I'm like, oh, man, there's a lot of things going on here, whether it's systemic, whether it's bias, whether it's my own cultural barriers of how I was taught to act in society. And so when I started talking about this more and more, I just started meeting more stories, more allies. And my co-founder of my organization, Asians in Advertising, she shared stories, Jessalyn Lamb. She shared stories of things that she went through. And there's so much strength of letting these conversations happen because you feel validated. You don't feel alone. You don't feel like I'm not enough. It's like, hey, maybe there's a bigger issue that we should all work on. And so I always tell the story of Asians in Advertising where it was like, oh, we hope 20 people will show up for a networking event on Zoom. And over 650 people signed up. And we're like, there's 650 people in advertising that look like us? And two years later, we're like 4,500 people and we're global. And we're like, 
global people need this. And so it has kind of just blossomed into like, okay, how can we help the community? Where are the gaps that we need to fill? And just sharing and creating community here. Yeah. So it sounds like the pandemic had a couple of things happening. One was obviously there was a lot of anti-Asian hate and violence. The numbers were horrific. I'm going to say a couple of stories, but I promise not to center anything that we go into around me and my experience. But my wife's from South Korea, my kids are mixed race. And what's interesting, because they come home to me as a white dad, and my daughter actually was uh, on, I think she led the AAPI group at one of her schools, maybe elementary school or the middle school thing. What I found interesting is they, on the one hand, would have to deal with being on TikTok and seeing the stuff about how white people are not good and then look at me. And on the other hand, they go to school and people are calling them Asian, telling them that they're Asian. And they're like, we're Australian. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, why do these people spend so much time trying to tell my kids who they are? My daughter got blamed for COVID as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old on a bus after ballet by like six, seven-year-olds with their parents and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, what, what is going on? There's, it's a sickness, right? But it sounds like for you, there was this general, you're seeing things and you're experiencing things personally in your own life and your own subjective reality. And you're like, no, nah, this has got to stop. But at some point, you called yourself an activist and you added that to your website. You added that to LinkedIn. You added that to your bio. Tell us about that moment. I don't know if there was that moment where I was like, aha, this is what I am. So a lot of times people tell me, they're like, you're such an extrovert. You're so good at public speaking. You do it all the time. It must feel supernatural to you. And I'm like, no. I am an introvert. I get really scared in crowds. It makes me really uncomfortable. I still feel like, okay, who am I going to offend in the room when I show up? It is such a conscious effort for me to be there and to stand up for what I believe. And I'm still finding my voice. I'm still exercising that confidence. So I don't know if I was like, yes, this day I am. I just kind of felt like no one was doing it. I felt like it was a need, and if I didn't say anything, and if I didn't do anything, who was going to do it? I felt like a very reluctant person into this role, but it's so incredibly important. And for my children as well, it's like, who's going to talk about it? Who's going to start doing it? Ah, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. I worked with someone who went to ad color which I think you've been around as well, which is a, a conference with people who are not white, I guess. I, ah, I'm struggling with language in case I say the wrong thing. And this person was almost in tears weeks after. I was like, I've never been in a room like that before. I've, I've seen Sean Choi from the Martin Agency present for 30 to 40 minutes about everything, everywhere, all at once. And he, he, I'm pretty sure he would cry the whole way through his own presentation if he could, because he's like, that's the first time I saw me and my family and our experience represented on screen. And it's just so powerful. And I, what I wonder is like, why wouldn't more people in the world want more of that to happen for more people? Because it's so good. Seeing yourself represented and your stories validated and you validated, wouldn't this world be better if more of that happened? Yes. I mean, shout out to Sean Choi, because I'm a big fan, and to the Daniels who were on stage. I actually was in the panel before him on the state of diversity at Ad Color. But I mean, this was the first Asian actress to win an Academy, right? This is the second woman of color ever. The last one was Halle Berry 21 years ago. Like, isn't that crazy? It's 2023. How is this still happening? Why aren't we telling stories? 
where is the pathing that's broken here? I agree. We need to look at this. The work will be more original. The voices, the stories, we could still get into these territories that are still so fresh and so fertile. There's so much opportunity here. And so directors, people behind camera, people on camera, like there's so much opportunity. And just to really take a harder look when you're in the room, whether it's on the concepting side, whether it's casting side, what's happening? How can we be more mindful of the people that we bring into these spaces? How can we create opportunities for all and for better work? All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to ask you for your top three tips. That's a simplistic question, but your top three tips to help the AAPI community, which is not monolithic, find success in the workplace. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to give me the first words that come to mind. And I'm watching you. I can see you as we're doing this interview. I'm watching you. I'm listening. You're going to give me a slightly corporate answer and then I'm not going to accept it. And then we're going to do real talk. Okay. Think about the ideas in the book and tell us the three most important ideas in the book. And then I'm going to wrestle with you and go push you around a little bit, see what happens. And the reason that I'm saying this and being a bit cheeky and sarcastic, not sarcastic, is I've said this before that I, I know I'm a white guy, but often when I've interviewed people about uh, diversity and inclusion or I, I see talks, I feel like it's corporate people talking to corporate people and it doesn't travel outside of the room. And then people are like debating these things that are really corporate. I'm like, no one talks like that outside of that room. No one. But you're all trying to be really noble. And it's like, your, your message would be more effective, maybe if it was less noble and more like rap. So I just want to see what comes out. I want to see what comes out. And it's funny because I don't think anyone has ever described me as corporate. Good. I didn't describe you as corporate either, but I'm watching you. I'm watching you. I'm like, what's going to happen? I'm going to drag you down to my level. I was like, I need to create a corporate. I feel like my answers are always like very based on personal stories of like, what should I have known earlier? Like, why didn't anyone tell me that? And so I'll give you some of my tips. And like, first one is networking. I had no idea that was important. I was like, okay, who am I to go network, right? I'm not at the top tier position. I'm not someone important. What do I have to give that people would even want to meet me? And I also explained that I'm an introvert. So I go to a room and my husband usually sees me like on the edge and I'm like trying to breathe and try to be like, okay, I could do this. Let me just go try. And I didn't realize that jobs, 80% are filled through networking and 70% of those jobs aren't put online. And when I learned that merely three years ago, I was paralyzed. Like I was like, oh my gosh, all those times I went to a networking event and just hung out with my friends on the side and met nobody. I was like, cool, we get drinks and food. And I never got into the foray and I never built those connections. Or even when I left a job, you know, I hung out with the people that, you know, I knew and was seeing day to day that I would text here and there, but I didn't make purposeful connections. I didn't make career connections. I didn't build that board of directors of people that could help me or support me that I could learn from. And so I always say like, this is a two-way street, be a good mentee, be a good mentor, be a good sponsor, create a community, help one another. And so one of those tips I say, like, don't be scared to reach out. Okay, so when you're talking about networking, are you, you're not just talking about networking events. That as a concept is brutally American. Like go to Sweden and do a talk and say networking event and everyone will shudder. And in London and in Australia, like, I don't want to do that. I don't, it's just like what Americans do. I don't want to do that. What are the other ways of networking that you feel that you maybe discovered later in life? So during the pandemic, when we're all isolated at home and I was like, where are my female of color mentors, especially AAPI? And I just was like taking all the webinars out there and I would just look for people that I'm like, oh, I identify with this person. I'm like looking on their LinkedIn or on their personal pages and I saw maybe they were a mother, maybe they were creative. 
And I would just reach out. I'd be like, hey, on LinkedIn, you don't know me. I looked at your work. I saw that you're a mom. I've never worked with anyone that looked like you. I would love to just have even 15 minutes, 30 minutes with you. And surprisingly, 90% of the people I reached out to actually reached back. And I'm still in contact with them to this day. And that moment where I got to see someone that was like me give me advice from their perspective was so valuable. And I encourage people, like, if you see someone out there that you admire, worst thing they're going to do, not going to return your call, right? They're not going to return your email. Best thing, you get 30 minutes. Respect their time. Take notes. Say thank you. Maybe even send them a coffee card. I always like to send a little Starbucks card. This is so American, Vinny. What's happening right now? Yeah, I like these points. I'm just so grateful for that opportunity. Like I said, just do it. I've got a friend, I probably might not even be in this country if it wasn't for this friend. Her name is Becky Wang and she is gangster as anything. You all need to know her. I forced her to share an office with me at Saatchi and Saatchi when I first moved here. She was head of analytics, then it was at Droga 5, head of analytics, and now is doing her own thing. Look her up, reach out to her. She'd be an incredible mentor because she's just a phenom. Also, I think from a networking point of view, if you are introverted, writing a book and being on stage is a great way of building a network because you don't have to go find it around a room. People will come to you. So that's also a good technique there. Okay, so networking is number one. Number two tip. I mean, really understand your brand. So we talked about this earlier. It's like finding your niche. What are you good at? I think a lot of times we put so much value in our job title, how much we make, where we work at. But what are you good at? What are you interested in? What makes you unique and different? Like, what are you putting about that about page that brings you out from that pile? I think is so important, especially because when I teach class and I look at a lot of student portfolios, that about page sometimes is really like, I just graduated from this school and I live in this city and I like to take photos. And I'm like, your book looks like everyone else's at this point because you've worked on the same class projects. That about page is that culture fit, which that's what they say 80% of agencies look for culture fit. Like that page is equally or more important than your actual portfolio page sometimes. And so knowing what your value is, what separates you, it can't just be like, I'm hardworking, eye for detail. It has to have that little extra, that extra little thing that makes you memorable. I agree. I often look at people's CVs and portfolios and I'm like, where are you? Now in the back of my head, I do have that voice. And I have someone in my household who will say this to me as well. That's because you're a white man. You have privilege and all that sort of, you have privilege. You can say these things. And, but I'm like, okay, yes. But also your CV looks like everybody else's and it looks like a robot wrote it. And what I will often, I don't, I'm can you get your take on this too. What I'll often encourage people to do is like, think back to your formative moments, the things that led you here, the, maybe even the painful moments and include them in your story. Find the truth there because it is captivating. Mm -hmm. How do you coach people to, get more of themselves into their CV or portfolio? I'm just like, make it fun, right? There's <laughs> me talking about pain and you're like, have fun. <laughs> it needs to be memorable. So I have a mentor and his name is Stevie. And I didn't even see this on his portfolio. This is even before my time. Like I heard that he got a job because he had a little like Easter egg where it showed him dunking. And he's like, not a dunking height stature human. And it was just like a fun Easter egg. Cameron Day has a great book. And he talks about all these ways people got to get noticed in the beginning of their career. Like a guy made a whole music video about Sprite. Like Sprite was like, you have to hire this person. You can do all these interesting ways to be seen, to be noticed, but you have to have that extra like, have you met this person? This person is incredible. 
can I highlight that point there? Have you met this person? You need to create artifacts, things, whether they're CV or portfolio level or website or book or whatever, that people are like, you've got to meet this person. That's your goal. You want other people introducing you so that you don't have to do it. And then they're predisposed to wanting you in. Your personal brand is what they say about you when you're not in the room. What do people say about you when you're not in the room? Hopefully they say that I'm here leading the charge for this community. Okay. Third tip. I mean, I always say this, that it's uncomfortable. Showing up is uncomfortable. You know, you even talked about your own like persona and showing up. If you're not that person that's a showboat that is like born on the screen, it's hard to like, I don't want to plaster my face everywhere. That's like a little cringe for me. And it's like, there is that uncomfortableness of talking about yourself that if you're not used to it, if you don't have that thing that you know that you stand for, when you talk about yourself, you may not highlight your achievements. You may not highlight your proof points. Like even sometimes when people read my bio, I'm still like, ooh, that's a lot of like praise. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. But really leaning into that moment a little bit and just knowing the purpose of why you're doing it. Why are you giving that talk? Who is this affecting? Why is this making the world a better place? Why is it of value to you and to the person that you're listening to? Asking those questions will really help those moments that you feel like, oh my gosh, am I posting too much on LinkedIn? Should I show that on my story? Should I put that on my website? Like for me, I was really purposeful in that because people looked at me and stereotyped me that I couldn't talk. I would go into meetings and be like, can you present that? Have you given a presentation before? I'm like, you're not asking that guy if he can speak well. You're asking me because I look like this if I can speak well. And so very early in my career, I created a speaker tab. So if you go to my website, you'll see that I'm probably a very anomaly as a creative in the industry that I have a speaker tab because I was like, oh my gosh, no one's going to think I can talk. They don't think I could go present ideas. And if I'm not in the room presenting my own ideas, how are they going to get through? And so I made a very concerted effort that I have to be like, okay, I know how to speak. I know how to open my mouth and give a presentation. I can get an idea across. And so I made sure that was on my LinkedIn. It was on my about page. It was on my website. I had proof points to that because I knew that people looked at me and thought differently. It's really interesting because having grown up in Australia, where if you stand out, someone will call you, I'm going to say a rude Australian word. They'll call you a wanker. We have a thing called the tall poppy syndrome. If you stand up, like you get tall like a poppy, a flower, you get cut off at the knees. Our perception of America, the USA, is you have personal narratives from a very young age, and these things get tested all the time in corporate environments. Hey, we're going to start this workshop. Tell us a fun fact about you. Oh, trigger me. I don't have a fun fact about me. Like, why are we doing this? Let's just do the workshop. But also, you compare kids getting interviewed by the news in Australia versus the US. And the kids in the US, whether or not they're intelligent or not at that age, they're so eloquent. They're so talk. You know, they can just talk. But you're saying that your experience of this country was not that you had to have a strong narrative or be super self-aware or be able to kind of advocate for yourself from a young age. Oh, no, I completely agree with you. I mean, the America saying here is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I was told the loudest duck gets shot, the tallest nail gets hammered, you know, bamboo gets cut, right? Like I was taught not to stand out. And so here in America, you do need to stand out. You do need to be that big presence in a room to sell through an idea, 100%. You do. And I think it is important, a little bit different for me because I moved here, but it's like, what game does this country play? And then do you want to play it? Because if you don't, then don't for me leave. But if you do, then you can't complain about the game you used to play, even though I do. I get a lot of uh, leeway out of uh, the game I used to play. But here it's about fame, charisma, personality, optics, confidence, big words, action as well, which is interesting. Just get things done, which is great. But charisma and fame and all those things, personality, they matter way more here than other countries. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
I hope that we recognize different types of leaders, different types of abilities. But I do think that is current, like what you see right at the top. Those are the things that people are looking for. I have a really great friend and they were telling her like, you just don't look like a leader. And that's because she just isn't a white male. We have a perception of what that looks like in this country and we don't like to differentiate it. I mean, look at our government, right? Like we still haven't had a woman president. We just had our first woman vice president and it caused a whole storm. Like we don't like change here and we'd like to see things that we know. I mean, we being Americans. But my hope is that if we can get more voices to that level, that we can kind of start seeing why it's a good thing. Ronnie Chang has a great bit about why Asians should run this country. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. We just get things done. We don't care about your feelings. We just get things done. That's a great example. Yeah, I love that segment. Final question. Okay. Asians in advertising, you've grown explosively. What would need to happen in this country for you and Jessalyn Lamb and your colleagues and the people in the group to be like, you know what? We've achieved what we set out to achieve. We don't need this anymore. For me, it's having that representation in media. I feel like anybody in our community can relate here. There wasn't much of us growing up. I remember the three Asian women I could see growing up, and I was like, Connie Chung, you know, Margaret Cho. There was the Yellow Ranger for a little bit, and then there was this one fly girl, like I remember on A Living Color. Again, totally dates me here. For those who don't know, it was a fun show at night. But there wasn't examples of who I could be in the future. And definitely it was not in commercials. It was definitely not in these places. And there's so much opportunity to have that representation. And the stats are just showing that we're sliding backwards. You know, as people, we cared a lot two years ago, three years ago, and just it's gone all the way back. And so my hope is that we start seeing that representation out there in media, that it is normalized, that not just one thing can happen and then the whole you know, ethnic group is scapegoated, right? Like, it should just be normalized. And to be honest, like, I don't know if the community, my hope is it never goes away, because I believe you should have communities. But it would just be in a place of like, hey, we're just here. And we're just a networking group versus like, how are we changing things? How can we show up? My hope is that, you know, we are here long term as a community for support. It is so sad hearing you describe that slide back because, I mean, so many of us, like, we spent so much time around, like, Korean film or television shows or particular food or travel dreams and YouTube channels. And it's like, what's going on? Like, it's sad. But anyway, I I hope you're successful and I hope my microaggressions weren't too aggressive. I hope they were, like, playful. Give me some final thoughts. Give me some final thoughts as you enter this new phase for you, for Asians in advertising. You've got this book. You're probably thinking about another book. You're probably thinking about a whole flywheel of things. What are you hoping to achieve in the very short term? I know you talked about wanting to try to increase the representation of this community in this country. Next year or two, like where are you going to, where are the levers? What are the buttons you're going to push the hardest? To be honest, I'm still trying to figure out what is the most effective way that I can help. I have a lot of ideas in my head, like, can I help someone in government? Can I help schooling systems? Can I create organizations at more of a grassroots level? Like, what is a place that I can use all the knowledge I've gained over the years in advertising and marketing and use it for good for my community? I'm still trying to figure out what is the best use of that skill that I can reach a big audience quickly or effectively. And then it's like, well, which audience? Is it the community itself? Or is it white people who run the country in Washington, D.C.? It's such a complicated issue. But thank you for letting me push you around a little bit today. I'm going to drop a little speech on the end. Like, If you're in this space, first of all, reach out to 
Bernice and Jessa Lim and Sean Choi as well and all the people that you've heard about today, but also like, don't be afraid to be direct, to know what you want, to say what you want and to be what you want to be. That is to me the American dream. That's the promise of this country that a lot of us moved here for. You can be more of who you want to be here compared to many other countries. And so when people often like second generation don't feel that, I'm like, oh, that dream's a lie, but it could still be achieved. It could still be achieved. So if people want to find out more about you or reach out, where's the best place to look? You can find me at BernieseChow.com. VisibilityMindset.com is our book. You can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to get a coffee chat and meet you. Love it, love it. And maybe you write a second book this year or next, but definitely soon. Possibly. I feel like I always have amazing conversations like this one and I'm like, oh, I need to add that or I wish I talked about that more. So definitely am thinking about and I've already collected a doc of ideas for that. Awesome. Awesome. And may you turn that mother of the year into mother of the decade. All right. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Bernice Chow, thank you so much for joining me here on Sweathead today. Thanks for having me. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.